Look down. Look left. Look up. Look right. The camera flash. Atomic bright. Photos the CMV. The green moon. And the world turns magenta. My retina is a distant planet. A red Mars from a boy's own comic. With yellow infection bubbling at the corner. I said, this looks like a planet. The doctor says, oh, I think it looks like a pizza. This is Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is the evolution of AIDS. The worst of the illness is the uncertainty. I've played this scenario back and forth each hour of the day for the last six years. All the music for today's program will come from English film director Derek Jarman's last work, Blue, released in September of 1993. Blue was made when Jarman was dying of AIDS and losing his eyesight. It has only a single continuous image consisting of the color blue, but the soundtrack is dense, making use of four separate speaking voices and numerous sound effects. Much of the narration consists of Jarman raging against his condition. Blue transcends the solemn geography of human limits. Human hands unwittingly unleash the AIDS epidemic and can now overcome it if we learn the lessons of the past. Today we'll discuss the evolution of AIDS from its origins in the equatorial forests of Cameroon to its outbreak in the 1980s to the efforts currently being made in Africa with the participation of some IU students to contain it. I'm home. Today, Joan Hawkins sits in the host chair for us and welcomes James Kelly, associate professor of journalism and director of undergraduate studies in the media school. His teaching areas include photojournalism, graphic communication and publication design, the mass media's role in society, and the reporting of HIV, AIDS, and healthcare. Last summer, he took 12 media school students to Kampala, Uganda, where they reported on HIV AIDS in Africa for the Daily Monitor newspaper. Jim has been reporting on AIDS in Africa for years and has collaborated with Moy University in Kenya since 2009, helping to bring healthcare education to Kenyans and Americans. I've been given the option of being an inpatient at the hospital or coming in twice a day to be hooked to a drip. My vision will never come back. The retina is destroyed. Though when the bleeding stops, what is left of my sight might improve. I have to come to terms with sightlessness. If I lose half my sight, will my vision be halved? Again, that was a selection from Derek Jarman's film, Blue. In some sense, perhaps, coming to terms with sightlessness is a good way to speak about our understanding of AIDS and the myths of its origination and transmission that have plagued all of us. And now here's Joan Hawkins. So welcome to Interchange, Jim Kelly. Well, thank you, Joan. Yes. So in the West, we usually think of AIDS in terms of risky behaviors, of sexual um, contact or needle sharing. But its origins, the way it jumped from chimpanzees to humans, is actually more rooted in Western exploitation of Africa's resources. Um, could you talk a little about that and talk about why AIDS emerged when it did? Sure. That process you referred to is zoonosis. It's when a pathogen, a virus, moves from 
animals to human beings, and it's probably been happening in equatorial Africa, sub-Saharan Africa for centuries. The conditions were right at the early part of the 20th century for an epidemic to outbreak. Um, what was once a virus that was limited to a village, and once the virus had worked its course, the village was gone, and the virus went into abeyance until it could jump from a monkey to human beings again, maybe in a few dozen or a hundred years. But right there at the turn of the century, you have Europeans scrambling for territory in Africa, and they are forcing porters to carry ivory and other raw materials out of Africa and therefore move from their village to other villages and even the city of Leopoldville that was established on the river by the king of Belgium. This movement of uh, human beings from one place to another carried the HIV virus into mm, conditions where men were alone, away from their women, um, their wives, and and so the virus began to spread. Um, and am I remembering correctly that they think that the way that the virus first jumped species was because of a human being perhaps butchering a chimpanzee, cutting himself? Yeah, most likely. Um, we know, I mean, and still today, many of uh, the primate species have similar viruses. Generally, they're referred to as SIV, simian immunovirus. And uh, when they come over to humans, then we just change it to human, and it's uh, a mutated virus um, adapted to the human condition. Uh, like I said, the, the fact of the matter was that in ancient Africa, these epidemics were small. They were contained to a very small location, and it died out. It required the movement of people to move the virus from one village to the next to the next very rapidly, and that's what Western colonial powers uh, forced on the Africans. They had the building their railroads, they had the moving goods from one place to another, and um, mm -hmm. the epidemic takes off. That was really the first modern epidemic. It's generally traced to a town which was then known as Leopoldville in what is today known as uh, uh, the Congo, but was then uh, Belgium, Congo. Um, yeah, I was interested in this idea of forced migration of Africans. I remember when we were talking earlier, you told me that story that was absolutely chilling of how if in a village enough people became infected, the entire village would die. Right. But then that would be the end of it, and it wouldn't spread. The disease mm -hmm. would not spread. That's the, that's the best science that, and history that we have on it. I mean, our understanding, humanity's understanding of this virus uh, continues to, to grow and, and evolve. But uh, the consensus now is that, in fact, it came over from animals, and it uh, probably recurred hundreds of times over the long course of uh, the virus in Africa. Mm -hmm. Modern conditions created the modern epidemic. Now, you might have already s touched on this, but could you talk a little bit about why Africans were disproportionately affected? Was it simply that the Europeans were huh. there in Africa? It's more that the virus was there in Africa. I and see. so the virus is, is uh, present 
Um, it didn't exist elsewhere in the world because it, it's a thing of primates. And so in Africa, our original homeland, I mean, all human beings trace back to Africa ultimately. And there in Africa, you're surrounded by other primates. And so the close relationship, evolutionary relationship between lower primates and upper primates means that this virus can find a, a host. It can do this zoonosis. Um, we today, um, most of us live outside of Africa where we don't have a lot of, uh, of primates surrounding us. And so the virus starts in Africa and the conditions of the that the colonial powers imposed on them create the conditions wherein a virus goes from a small occurrence to a very large occurrence. Um, people are moved from place to place, and of course, even the Europeans are moving from place to place. So there are several vectors that allow the virus to move and infect new populations. The HIV virus is actually quite fragile. It's difficult yeah. to transmit, but given the displacement of people, when people are moved from their home to an unfamiliar place, we see a higher incident rates for, for HIV, whether that's refugee communities, whether that's war, whether that's the sort of hmm, world migration that uh, comes about in the 70s with the advent of uh, international flight. The virus can move with human beings, and, and once it's in a, a population, um, difficult as this is to transmit, um, People like to have sex, and that's the primary way it's transmitted, and it moves from person to person that way. Yes, and then, of course, we had this feeling of an explosion of, a, of an outbreak, but in part that's because the virus itself has such a long latency period in the human body. Yeah, it, uh, HIV is not like most viruses. It has an, an incubation period, a latency period, that in the average person lasts 8 to 12 years. And so when I get a cold, I get a runny nose, I feel bad, mm -hmm. and I'm done. The time from infection to the end of the illness is relatively short. When you get HIV, you feel bad for a few days, you may get a cold, run a fever, it seems like an illness that you've had in the past. It's not, ten, not for 10 or 12 years before you experience the uh, opportunistic infections that are the hallmark of AIDS. Um, and so suddenly you're coming down with cancers and other maladies that uh, are debilitating and your body's immune system is so weak at that point that you have no way to uh, resist these infections. And so you die from something other than AIDS, but right. HIV has presented the condition by which these other pathogens can, uh, can attack you. Right. Um, the Center for Disease Control identified AIDS as a thing in 1981, yes? Uh, they identified the HIV virus in 82 and then AIDS in, uh, I'm sorry, you're right, 82 for AIDS, 84 for HIV. HIV. And then, so between this, uh, what we think of as the modern period of the, of the 
epidemic proportions of AIDS in, say, the 20s in Africa, and this moment in the United States when the Center for Disease Control is sort of identifying this syndrome. Uh, can you say a little bit about, sort of, I guess, how it unfolded in Africa during that time? Was it recognized in Africa? It's much more difficult to know. We know how it worked, how it transpired in the United States and Europe because, of course, it was infecting white folk who have the resources to chart their medical condition. In Africa, subject to colonial um, influence, uh, domination, the virus was probably being spread at a reasonably or at a dangerous rate from the east side of Africa, or I'm sorry, from the west side of Africa to the east side and then down into the south. So the virus was moving. It was reproducing itself. The prevalence rate was increasing. But uh, little notice was had because people would die from opportunistic infections that were quite common. And so someone would die from yellow fever. Well, lots of people died from yellow fever. There was no reason to suspect that there was some agent other than yellow fever at operation here. And so the epidemic, the growing epidemic, was largely unnoticed in Africa until HIV and AIDS was finally identified by the Westerners. I see. And then how did they trace it back? So once we identified it here, how did we trace it back to Africa and say, okay, so this is an issue in Africa and we have to address it there as well? Um, to tell you the truth, I don't know. Well, that's a good thing. That's I think, a good question. Uh, I, my, I really don't know. Okay. So this mo I'm sorry, but no, most of Africa becomes aware of the status of their epidemic in the early 80s. And it's because, I mean, there, there's communication between the medical communities in Africa, which is by the 1980s well-established as independent countries. Um, and so some of the hmm, evidence of HIV, which was fairly easily dismissed as uh, normal tropical diseases, um, was probably linked up to the idea that, in fact, this was this slim disease that they'd been talking about, especially around the, the Victoria Lake region, was actually um, AIDS. Right. The slim disease is something that we in the West often call the wasting disease or right. wasting illness. Mm -hmm. So it's time for a break. Uh, Again, this is a segment out of Derek Jarman's Blue, his last film, made while he was dying of AIDS and losing his sight. Stay with us for more on the evolution of AIDS with James Kelly when Interchange returns on WFHB. Thank you. 
dog barks. The caravan passes. Marco Polo stumbles across the blue mountain. Marco Polo stops and sits on a lapis throne by the river Oxus while he is ministered to by the descendants of Alexander the Great. The caravan approaches. Blue canvases fluttering in the wind. Blue people from over the sea, ultramarine, have come to collect the lapis with its flecks of gold. Welcome back. This is Interchange. I'm Joan Hawkins sitting in for Doug Storm. Our show is The Evolution of AIDS, and my guest is James Kelly. In our first segment, we talked a bit about the history of the disease and how different communities have different histories. And now we'll be turning to the AIDS crisis of the 80s and 90s in the United States and Europe. And so um, the first thing, I was trying to go back and look at figures for in preparation for the show today. And one of the things that really struck me is that even with the Center for Disease Control apparently monitoring this illness, at least from 81 on, the it is so difficult to get actual figures, or at least every site that I looked at gave slightly different figures for deaths. But regardless of the numbers that you use, the uh, growth of the epidemic in the Western world was kind of staggering. So in the United States, in 1980, before we had even really identified AIDS, they're now uh, reaching back, estimating the number, number of deaths as 31. By 1981, they estimate the number of deaths as 234. Uh, in 82, the term AIDS was coined. By 1983, so from 81 when it was 234 to 83, it had jumped up to 2,118 deaths, that in the United States. In 84, when HIV was identified, that number had doubled to 5,596 deaths. And one year later, it had doubled again to 12,000 deaths in the United States. In 1986, when Ronald Reagan mentioned the term AIDS for the first time, the number had grown to 24,559. It was just, it was staggering. Uh, ACT UP was founded in 1987, and by the time ACT UP was founded, uh, people were justifiably really, really angry. I'm not even quite sure how to move into this segment because I lived through this time in San Francisco and I lost a lot of friends. And I remember how awful it was and how you felt. My mother lived through World War II. 
And as my mother was watching my friends die, she was saying to me that this reminded her of the war and that she had hoped that she would never, ever see her daughter have to go through what she had gone through. Um, so this is a very open-ended question. You know, we talked in the last segment about Africa, about the uh, beginnings of AIDS as a syndrome, as, a, as an epidemic illness. And um, I know we talked earlier today about how the fact that it came to the West sort of it was a horrible thing, but it also was what led to the, the development of drugs, the development of some kind of a protocol for treatment of the illness. Yeah, HIV is an unusually horrible malady. Um, it kills the strongest of society. It attacks the breadwinner of the family. And that was true in Africa. It's been true in the United States. But more than that, one of the reasons that those numbers that you reference are somewhat unreliable is because a terrible stigma attaches to an HIV-positive person. When people learned that Ryan White here in Indiana, in Kokomo, um, was HIV-positive, um, he was denied entrance to his school. This was a 10-year-old child. Um, adults suffered similar uh, kinds of discrimination, regardless of whether they were in Indiana or the, the more uh, well-known areas of the epidemic, like New York and San Francisco. Um, this was an illness that somehow was shameful, and it's difficult to attack a medical problem when there's that kind of stigma surrounding it. Mm -hmm. um, you're right. By the time that the epidemic is, is killing in the tens of thousands, those who were in jeopardy of themselves dying, oftentimes people who were and knew they were HIV positive, um, they finally acted up. They, they demonstrated, they put pressure on the government to do something because the government had been doing very little up to that point. My, uh, my appreciation of things is that the most important thing that America did to combat the HIV epidemic in Africa, where people were dying not by the tens of thousands, but by the hundreds right. and hundreds of thousands, the best thing that America did was, was that the, especially the, the gay men in San Francisco and New York and Miami rose up, demanded that something be done. And in the course of that, yes, they pushed the scientific community for, towards discovery of both basic knowledge about how the virus was reproduced, how it was transmitted, but also breakthroughs eventually in a, in a drug regimen that was able to decrease the viral load and allow people right. to move from a death sentence to uh, an acute illness. Um, had it not been for these activists, these people who were willing to put themselves on the line to bravely announce that, indeed, I am HIV positive and I demand that something be done to, to address this health emergency, had they not demanded that in the United States where the resources were available to develop the pharmaceuticals that would eventually change the face of HIV-AIDS, then Africa would have been 
in far dire straits. Um, perhaps it's somewhat a repayment of the debt that the West owes Africa for having generated the conditions where the virus was able to turn into a massive epidemic, that the West was also able to con generate the conditions whereby medical advances allow us an opportunity to end the HIV-AIDS epidemic. But the people responsible for that are the activists in the streets. They are not the colonialists or their ancestries here in the, the modern era. It's interesting because even in that way, it seems that the story has come full circle because we talked about how uh, kind of commercial exploitation of the continent of Africa is partly, at least partly responsible for the unleashing of the virus to begin with or the transmission of the virus. Yeah. And it was, especially for younger listeners, when we talk about the kinds of demonstrations that ACT UP mounted, it wasn't just that they were say, marching with signs in the street, they closed the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco on numerous occasions. They closed the subway stations in New York City. When they would act, when they really would act up, nothing moved. And they made it very clear that they were not going to allow people to have a comfortable commercial existence while people were dying. So it's a very, um, it's interesting how even uh, even at that level of like we finally do something to help stop the disease that we help to unleash, that even that has to be done through these kinds of commercial venues. Hmm. Hmm. Could you say a little bit more just about um, the, the development of the drugs? We were talking earlier, again, ACT was a horrible drug. Hmm. We finally got to the antiretrovirals, and that seems to be much more... Um, well, it's, it's helping people to live with AIDS, but it also seems to be much more, uh, we can have more optimism about the idea that eventually maybe we could contain the disease altogether. Yeah, in fact, as you know, I will argue that we have an opportunity to end the yes. AIDS epidemic, and we can do it with the antiretroviral drugs that we have in our arsenal now, and that is indeed the UN AIDS goal, is that we eradicate... Uh, H, well, we bring it under full control by 2020 and that we eradicate it within a generation after that. I think there's real prospect for that. And um, while the West provided uh, great resource to Africa by creating these drugs, and then, of course, um, pharmaceutical companies in Brazil and India further contributed by making generic versions of these antiretrovirals, which became affordable for Africans, um, and while Africa is not uniformly um, mired in poverty, the, the majority of folks who live in sub-Saharan Africa are living on less than $2 a day, and so the price of these medicines becomes, or were, prohibitively expensive at the beginning. Today they're affordable. Um, in part because the United States has the, introduced this PEPFAR program. Back mm -hmm. in 2003, President Bush introduces the, the PEPFAR program. He devotes uh, huge resources towards the provision of ARVs and other uh, epidemic-related resources towards Africa and uh, made it possible 
to bring a sizable proportion of those who were living with HIV under treatment and all sorts of positive developments accrue once people are on ARTs. You mentioned AZT earlier. It was. It was a terribly difficult drug to tolerate. It was basically people poisoning themselves. Mm -hmm. It did delay the onset of AIDS. And more than that, it gave scientists a real clue as to how to develop pharmaceuticals that would indeed drive the mm, proliferation of the virus low enough that the human's uh, immune system could tolerate the presence of the virus. Um, I think it's time for another break and another selection from Derek Jarman's Blue. Stay with us for more about the evolution of AIDS with our guest James Kelly when Interchange returns on WFHB. Oral DHPG is consumed by the liver, so they've tweaked a molecule to fool the system. What risk is there? If I had to live 40 years blind, I might think twice. Treat my illness like the doldrums. Music, bright lights, bumps, and throw yourself into life again. This is listener-supported WFHB, Bloomington, Bedford, Ellettsville, Nashville, Community Radio for South Central Indiana, online at WFHB.org. It is 6 o'clock and 81 degrees tonight, a low of 65 degrees with a chance of showers, about 20%. Wednesday, a high of 77, a low of 62, a 30% chance of thunderstorms both through the day and evening hours. And on Thursday, a continued 30% chance of showers, a high of 80 degrees. Stay tuned, Interchange is coming back. The pills are most difficult. Some taste bitter, others are too large. I'm taking about 30 a day, a walking chemical laboratory. I gag on them as I swallow them, and they come up half dissolved in the coughing and spluttering. Welcome back. This is Interchange. I'm Joan Hawkins. Our guest tonight is James Kelly, Director of Undergraduate Studies in the Media School here at Indiana University. We've been talking about the AIDS crisis in the 1980s and 90s, and in this segment we'll talk about the changing response to the disease as drugs became more available and effective in the U.S., and how this affected responses to AIDS in Africa. We started talking a little bit about this in the last segment where you mentioned um, 
President Bush, then President Bush, uh, starting the PEPFAR program. And in fact, he did that sort of in a renegade fashion, right? He just sort of announced it in his State of the Union address and kind of forced the companies to go along with him. Yeah, I think most of the pharmaceutical companies in the world were pretty shocked when Bush essentially came out and said, these generics, they're a good thing. For less than a dollar a day, we can treat people in Africa. And that had, I don't think, been the plan of these pharmaceutical companies. They were making tremendous profits on the on the medicines here in the United States and in Europe. And for their patents to be violated by these folks in India and Brazil, that was something very uncomfortable to them. When the President of the United States then announces that he'll provide funding to send these uh, these antiretrovirals in sufficient quantity to actually treat the epidemic in Africa. Um, I think they were shocked, but I can tell you Africa was hmm. ecstatic. Um, in, the, in the earliest parts of the epidemic in Africa, when Africa knew in the 90s that these, these medicines were available in the West, the WHO, the World Health Organization, was saying that they were cost prohibitive, that the only plan for Africa would be treat would be prevention, because tr- treatment was prohibitively expensive, and and they also suggested that Africans would be unable to comply with the severe reg- uh, regimen that's required in order for these ARVs, especially the early ones, to work. You heard in the in the dialogue from Blue that these pills were challenging to take. They had to be taken every day. They have side effects, and the earliest ones had fairly debilitating side effects. Um, along comes Fe- PEPFAR. These ARVs are, are uh, prescribed to people across the sub-Saharan Africa, and their compliance figures are actually much better than folks in the West. Um, amazingly high. And so uh, the introduction of these low-cost and, and paid for um, pharmaceuticals um, begin to change the attitude of Africans towards this epidemic. It mm-hmm. suddenly seems survivable. Mm-hmm. You had, uh, when we were talking earlier, you were telling me that a lot of women would end up getting treatment when they went to prenatal clinics. Mm-hmm. So at the moment when they found out that they were pregnant and realized that if they took these drugs, they could maybe help their unborn child. Yeah, it it really is women who provide almost all of the reliable data that we have about the epidemic in Africa because it is really only women, for the most part in Africa, who go see the doctor. And they go see the doctor when they're ready to give birth to a child. Men don't go see the doctor until they're ready to die. Um, So by the time a man goes in to see the doctor, he's already got full-blown AIDS, and there's, well... There's actually something called the Lazarus effect. If you can treat somebody even when their CD4 count is so low that you would think their immune system was unable to recover, with these ARBs these days, they actually can come back as if they're coming back from the dead. And so the power of these ARVs is really quite dramatic, both at the individual level and at the societal level. But... Um, you're right. Women will go into the clinics and they'll be tested. And that's really the first step in treatment is testing. 
uh, sure, it has to be preceded by awareness, but Africa has been aware of the fact that the epidemic is decimating their population for decades now. Um, Once women get into the clinic, once they're on ARV, they deliver HIV-negative children. Um, The epidemic is slowed. And more and more we understand that these antiretrovirals not only protect the individual who is HIV positive, but because they drive the viral load so low in the individual, the likelihood of transmission to another is decreased to the point where the virus has a difficult time moving from person to person. That's wonderful. Could you talk, I'm kind of going to sag here, but I'd like you to talk a little bit about Moy in Kenya. And it's both a university and a hospital, is that correct? Yeah, 30 years ago, Indiana University's med school, um, led by a fellow named Bob Einters, um, went to western Kenya, identified the ideal location to set up a collaboration between the medical school and then the Ministry of Health in Kenya, uh, who were eager to set up a second medical um, system in the country. Previously, there was only one in Nairobi. And so they set up a medical school at Moy University and uh, partnered with Indiana University to provide training for both residents at the program in Indianapolis and Bloomington, but also to provide training for students who were coming up through the ranks of education at Moy. Um, this partnership began as an attempt to improve healthcare delivery in Western Kenya. But then in the 90s, when the epidemic hits, the doctors at uh, Indiana University, completely familiar with the advances in ARVs in the United States, um, well, uh, tragically, they begin saying their colleagues fall prey to uh, AIDS. And so while the as I said earlier, while the WHO had been admonishing Africa not to treat but simply prevent, uh, these doctors at Ampath were unable to do that. Um, their, their friends, their colleagues, uh, people they lived with every day uh, were dying. And so they managed to get a pharmaceutical company in Indiana to donate some ARVs to their Ampath project, and they began treating the doctors and the nurses who were who were sick in the wards instead of treating those in the wards. And, and the, the stories from that era are replete with these Lazarus effects that I talked about earlier. Doctors who were about to be lost to the medical community were suddenly back in business. They, they were healthy enough to treat patients. And, and it was... Hmm, fortuitous that just about the time that the grant of ARVs was coming to an end that uh, the Bush administration brings in PEPFAR and the AMPATH project uh, it's it, it, it is the one of the earlier beneficiaries of the uh, the drug regimens that were made available to uh, Africa and so because they had this close partnership and and Ampath is an amazingly close partnership um, at every level. If there's a director from America, there's a director from Kenya. They're co-directors. 
And on top of that, there are very few Americans involved. It's really only a handful, uh, rarely exceeding more than 30 or 40 people um, from the West who are working at the uh, Moy Teaching and Referral Hospital or any of the Ampath clinics. Uh, there are now 62 of them located around Western Kenya. Um, if you ask a Kenyan about Ampath, and I've had the fortune to teach uh, three dozen Kenyan students as part of my class, if you ask them about Ampath, they will tell you about Sylvester Kimayo or, or others who are Kenyans. Most Kenyans don't realize that Indiana University is actually a part of Ampath. It looks to them like an African project. And from my vantage point in the academy, that's what we've always sought in the way of international development, is that there were few enough Westerners there to support the Africans as they go about solving their own problem. Empath is, a, is just a fantastic, a, a lovely uh, testament to the power that uh, one university can have in helping another university. Um, I can't say enough good things about Empath. It is the reason that I started taking students to Africa to report, because not enough people in Indiana understand or even aware of just how long-standing and how effective this collaboration between a Kenyan university and an American university actually is. That's wonderful. I, I wanted to impart what you in your last comment. I wanted to move into a little bit more onto a more personal note and just ask you what it was that brought you to this story to begin with. As a uh, young journalist working in the early 80s, I had, uh, I'd on occasion, be assigned to cover AIDS-related stories. Um, when I moved to the academy, I finished my graduate degree here at Indiana University, took a job over in Illinois, and uh, had opportunity to begin working on international development projects that were aimed at training journalists to hmm, do a better job of public affairs reporting. And so as I'm working on these grants and working with journalists in Africa and, and South Asia, um, it became increasingly clear that what they needed help with was reporting on this HIV AIDS epidemic. They did not have the technical expertise. They didn't have a network of medical uh, sources where they could get accurate information. Uh, they themselves were suffering under a considerable amount of, of uh, myth about how the, the virus is transmitted and how the medical community was responding. And so we shifted our training towards uh, helping these journalists do a better job of reporting on this. I then moved to uh, Indiana University back here to join the faculty in 2010. And in the first meeting, the dean asked me, you go to Africa, uh, would you mind touching base with the medical school in Indianapolis because they have this program? And it was like, yeah, yeah, I'll touch base with them. And, uh, and so the only idea I could come up with for helping the medical school was to take my students over there and have them do reporting. Um, I'm a journalist. All I know is to, to you know, shine a light on problems and issues. And in this case, I could shine a light on a problem, but I could also shine a light on a solution because Empath was providing a solution to the HIV epidemic. 
it's an incredible opportunity, and I've been very fortunate to be able to take students to Kenya on uh, three separate occasions, three summer courses. So 36 Americans have gone to Moy and done reporting, and uh, while we're there, I, I link my students up with uh, journalism students from Moy University. They form these two-person reporting teams, and so my students not only get to report on HIV, but they get to make friends with uh, Kenyan students. Great. So we are heading into break three, and it's time for our last break. We've been listening to selections out of Derek Jarman's 1993 excuse me, film Blue, his last work. The film actually consists of a single shot of saturated blue color filling the screen as background to a soundtrack where Jarman's and some of his longtime collaborators' narration describes his life and vision. When we return, we'll talk to Jim Kelly about traveling to Uganda last summer with IU students to report on HIV-AIDS in Africa. is the universal love in which man bathes. It is the terrestrial paradise. Blue. I'm walking along the beach in a howling gale. Another year is passing. In the roaring waters, I hear the voices of dead friends. Love is life that lasts forever. My heart's memory turns to you. David. Howard. Graham. Terry. this present were the world's last night. In the setting sun, your love fades, dies in the moonlight, fails to rise, thrice denied by cockroach, in the dawn's first light. Welcome back. This is Interchange. I'm Joan Hawkins. For our final segment on the evolution of AIDS, we'll take you to Africa to discover the current state of affairs concerning HIV and AIDS there. Last summer, our guest Jim Kelly took 12 media school students to Kampala, Uganda, where they reported on HIV AIDS in Africa for the Daily Monitor newspaper. So I want to ask you something specific about your experiences this past summer and the projects that the students did. But before that, I wanted to, you to say something about 
about why the students, students can't go to Kenya. There's a State Department travel advisory against Americans traveling to Kenya. It's been in place since the um, uh, Al-Qaeda blew up the embassy there mm-hmm. back in 1998. I've, uh, I was able to get exception to take journalism students there for three summers in large measure because we were associated with AMPATH. After the Al-Shabaab terrorist uh, bombed the Westgate shopping mall in Nairobi in uh, 2013, uh, the university imposed an embargo on student travel. So for a year, even the medical students were unable to go back to Moy University. And the, while that embargo has been lifted, thankfully, the undergraduate students are still unable to go to uh, Kenya. And so luckily, um, when that came up, I already had a s- class of students enrolled, and I was able to shift the course over to Kampala. I have a friend who uh, was the publisher of the newspaper at the time, one of those associations from back in my training days, and uh, he generously uh, offered to host the students as interns at his uh, newspaper. And so while my students no longer have opportunity to uh, work side-by-side with student journalists, uh, they do go into a newsroom where all of the bosses all of the trainers, all of the editors, all of the other reporters are Africans, and uh, they teach my students how to do reporting. It's a wonderful opportunity for the students, and and in many ways Uganda is the ideal location because it was once the poster child for the tragedy of the HIV epidemic, but as a result of campaigns that were initiated by President Museveni and supported by all five of the major sectors of society, they were able to drive their prevalence rate far lower than anyone anticipated even before the advent of, of uh, PEPFAR and the, the reign of the antiretrovirals. So Uganda is, is definitely a, a, a success story in this sub-Saharan African epidemic. It's great that my students get together. They to get to go there. They don't get to go to Moy University. They don't get to work with Empath. But uh, I think the important thing is that they have opportunity to go report on this epidemic. It provides a challenge to journalists that few other topics do. Now, one, it's highly technical, and you'll forgive me for any technical errors I've made up to date. But um, the students have to steep themselves in the pathology of the virus, the the history and the facilities of medical care in, in the country and the long history of, of research and, and advancement that's come out of Uganda. So it's a highly technical subject, but more than that, many of the people who are their most important sources, the people who are living with HIV and who are brave enough to talk about the, the life that they live in order to advance the end of the epidemic, um, these people are, are highly vulnerable to the stigma that I talked about in the earlier segment. And so the students have to exercise extreme care with these vulnerable subjects. Um, oftentimes, they're essentially talking people out of providing information to them because they want to make certain that they're aware of the consequences of them talking to them. Um, 
that's not something that journalists tend to do, but it's, it's necessary in this circumstance. And, and yet, uh, time and time again, students are able to locate people who are brave, who do understand the power of information in combating uh, this epidemic. And they talk with them, they share their stories, and as a result, um, my students are privileged to speak with some of the best people in the continent. That's wonderful. Can you talk a little bit about the projects that your students have done, that your students produced? Um, every student produces one story that's published in the Daily Monitor. That's the country's largest privately owned newspaper. And they publish one story there before we leave. And that's, of course, written for an African audience. And they are far more uh, expert about the epidemic in Kampala than they are here in Bloomington or, dare say, anywhere else in the United States. So it's a challenging audience. We then come back to the United States. They repurpose that story for an American audience, a lot more explanation, a lot more background. And then they produce two more stories, often multimedia stories, that we post to a website. Um, can you give the website? I can. All you need to do is go to the media school at Indiana <laughs> University and search for Uganda HIV and you'll find it. Um, we've been producing these websites after every iteration of the class. And uh, while I'm afraid to say that uh, publishers and editors that I've contacted here in the United States to entice them to publish my students' work um, too frequently respond by saying that, well, AIDS is an old story and stories about Africa aren't of interest to them. And I can understand that perspective. Um, but what we do do is publish them to the website. And so by the end of the year, we usually have about 10,000 uh, readers come to the site. I think most of them are aunts and uncles, cousins, brothers, sisters, and parents of the students who are doing the reporting. Um, but it makes a difference. People understand a little bit better about how Africans are combating this epidemic. And in this regard, Africans combating this epidemic, turning it around and ending it, is what's going to save the rest of the world from the epidemic. And so our future really does rest on the shoulders of these Africans. If the HIV epidemic were to escape Africa in substantial numbers, and this is not in any way to suggest that the, the folks here in the United States and Europe and Asia and Australia haven't suffered from HIV, but not in the numbers. There are 33 million people living with HIV today in the world, and 19 million of them live in South Sub-Saharan Africa. It's where the epidemic is, and it's also where the solutions are being developed. Can you say something about how this experience changes your students? You've talked a little bit about the work that they produce, which is mm -hmm. wonderful, but um, do you come back from Africa the same? I always say. I tell my students at the beginning when we're preparing in Bloomington, I will bring back 12 different people. And I do. One, as anyone who's traveled to the developing world knows, just the experience of seeing how most of the world lives, the material conditions that they exist in are so dramatically different than what we're used to, it changes your understanding. You never watch the television news the same way. 
But for my students, they're going there and they're not taking a trip to a game park just to look at animals. They are spending every day in a newsroom full of African journalists. They're going into the slums. They're going into the medical facilities. They're going into the clinics. They're, they're meeting Africans. They're coming to hear their stories and reporting on this important topic. I tell them their mission is to save the world. The mission is to save the world. I don't know that it, how many people actually read their stories, but if the right person reads their story and it changes their attitude and they're able to go out and do something to stop this epidemic, these trips are worth it. It's wonderful. That's our show. And of course, we'll close with more out of Derek Jarman's Blue. If you can find some time, listen to the whole thing uninterrupted. Thanks to Jim Kelly of IU's Media School for joining us to share his insights on the evolution of AIDS and his experiences investigating the continuing struggle, struggle against the disease in Africa. Thanks, Jim. Thank and you, Joan. Thank you for listening. I'm Joan Hawkins. Next week, Interchange will share some of the best highlights from the last year and will be joined by Marissa Moorman to talk about the local power of radio in times of political unrest. Interchange is produced by Doug Storm. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon. Our studio engineer tonight is Jennifer Brooks. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by the Jasmine Adry, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. The Gautama Buddha instructs me to walk away from illness. But he wasn't attached to a drip. <laughs> <laughs>